is Joe. Hello. Hey, Keith. Yeah, what's up, Joe? Do you know where the phrase little green men comes from? Um, I do not. We're about to find out. We're going to be discussing the Hopkinsville Goblin. Yes, I'm really excited about this one. This is a uh, another one of our kind of Monster of the Week episodes, and we just found that we have a lot of fun with these kind of one-off cryptids and creatures, so we thought we'd bring you another one tonight. Yes, definitely. And this is one of those I consider to be a Hall of Fame cryptid. It's one of the more famous stories of alien encounters out there, outside of Roswell or the Flatwoods monster who we covered in season one. This is definitely one of the more violent encounters as well as we'll get into. And definitely has a larger reaching hold on not only crypto zoology ufologist culture but also on popular culture oddly enough and what better way to talk about aliens than to talk about kentucky which seems to be a hotbed for alien activity where we'll be talking about this evening is pretty close to kelly kentucky but it is more more associated with hopkinsville It was on the evening of October 21st, 1955. Five adults and seven children arrived at the Hopkinsville police station, scared out of their mind. What they had to report was a story that was completely out of this world. They had claimed that there were small alien-like creatures that arrived in a spaceship and they were attacking their farmhouse. And luckily they pulled off this attack with gunfire for nearly four hours. Now two of the adults, Elmer Sutton and Billy Ray Taylor claimed that they had been shooting at 12 to 15 short, dark figures who repeatedly popped up in the doorways and or peered into the windows. And I can't think of anything more scary than just being somewhere that you consider safe, your own home. And then all of a sudden your home is besieged by not only just 
another person, but something that you've never seen before and worse off, something that you can't explain. I remember reading quite a bit from Elmer Sutton, if I remember correctly, where he said that he had shot at least by his count 10 to 12 of these creatures. They would phase out and then they would fade back in just in a different location. Even ones that he saw that he knocked down with gunfire, they would just pop right back up like nothing happened. And to me as a father and a husband, I can't think of anything more scary than trying to defend people that I love from something that I have no control over and something that I cannot stop. And this is why this is one of the scarier stories to me. But let's get your thoughts about the goblin case here, Joe. Yes. And I do want to go into a little more detail on this case, but we'll do that a little later in the episode. We've talked about cryptids besieging houses in the wilderness before. If you'll remember back to season one, when we talked about Bigfoot, we talked about something similar where apparently Bigfoot, multiple Bigfoot were besieging a house full of lumberjacks or loggers and they were throwing rocks and everything at them and they were firing off with gunfire as well. So this is something, it is straight out of a horror movie but it's not as uncommon as we think it is, especially in the world of alien encounters, cryptozoology, the paranormal, all-encompassing. To clarify, you're not talking about a murder that happened in the 80s out in the woods from a Bigfoot or something like that, right? No, I'm not some jagoff that's trying to bait and switch you into listening to this podcast by talking about a Sasquatch that murdered someone in California out in like whatever the f- 70s or 80s and then actually actually just some dude named Bigfoot who killed some guys no I'm not bait and switching anyone here to my knowledge that guy and that series I was so disappointed I was so disappointed I remember being excited to watch that and that son of a that was so disappointing god I'm pretty sure that you and I both got the specific streaming service just to watch that. And the first couple episodes, we were into it. And then it veered right into true crime. And we're like, oh, son of God. And we were just both so mad about it. I enjoy true crime. And there are some true crime that I think veer into the paranormal. But in this case, it really was just a way to do a true crime show and try and get as many eyes on it as possible without really trying to tie it back to that source material ever. Like, he did it for one or two episodes and then was like, yeah, f*** guys, now now, now it's on the my agenda and what I actually was researching because you guys are just stupid idiots and I'm smarter than you. So future reference, if you ever want to work him into a shoot, just reference that documentary and it'll work every single time now now getting back to the hopkinsville goblin i know that one of the big things about it is that it was featured in the project blue book files and the united states air force does classify it as a hoax if you're a true believer and true ufologist and you think the truth is truly out there you're you're never going to believe anything from that report or from the government but i thought that was worth mentioning that It is considered a hoax, and a lot of that reasoning is because psychologists look at it kind of a thing that was started with the the UFO mania that kind of started with the Flatwoods monster three years earlier, that all of a sudden people were more people were coming forward with 
encounters of these little creatures and cryptids and just really strange little things that were straight out of sci-fi and that's kind of the the psychological explanation for it but i really don't believe in it i honestly think that a lot of different types of extraterrestrials may be found on our planet around the same time and yeah it, we, we were basically being visited quite a bit around that time period and that's really whenever we were really paying attention to those encounters and we've been over this last season we talked about this that that the 50s really could have been a time when extraterrestrial beings alien life forms were sending scouts to earth to scout out terrains scout out humans and really see if earth was worth visiting aligning with or exterminating so i think that you're right it does fall in line with that but I remember last season we did bring up the theory that this could have been just a series of scout missions. Yeah, we had mentioned that in a couple episodes. We mentioned it in the Flatwoods Monster episode and I believe the alien abduction episode. We kind of talked about how some advanced scouts maybe looked a little bit different because they didn't know anything about the atmosphere and whether it was toxic to them, things like that. Now, one interesting thing that I did want to bring up about the Hopkinsville kind of situation is that a lot of these, actually, I just want to bring up about alien encounters in general. They keep popping up around the 50s, early 50s. I would really love for somebody who has a degree, you know, in nuclear sciences to contact us and let us know how long it would take for any kind of radiation from the blasts at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because that energy had to go somewhere outside of our atmosphere. There's no way that that was just contained within our atmosphere. I wonder how much of that energy and if maybe some of these extraterrestrial civilizations were listening for that specific almost beacon. And that's really what put us on the radar of all these different kinds of extraterrestrials. I don't know. I really want to get more information on that. And if nobody has studied that, I really think that should be looked into. Well, I know that kind of brings up a few things that came from TV and movies. I remember Batman vs. Superman, which is actually a good movie. Everyone just hates it because it's not Iron Man, which is stupid. But at the end of it, when Lex Luthor is in prison, he said that now the world knows Superman is here, so he's gonna attract... He's gonna attract bad guys, powerful people from across the universe to come kill him. Like, the bell has been rung kind of thing. Come get me. That's the same thing with Dragon Ball Z. As Goku got stronger and stronger, more beings from across the universe wanted to come fight him to prove they were the strongest. So, take that as you will. That this is a it's a phenomenon that isn't I think well explored in the real life circumstances but in fiction it is now what where else the radiation could have gone though is it could have gone into the ocean and it could have just grabbed onto one particular lizard and grew it to gigantic proportions and 
made it into this giant sleeping lizard that breathes fire and comes out of the water every 50 to 100 years to wreak havoc upon Tokyo. And Tokyo only. It doesn't count the one when he was in New York. We don't talk about that. Like I said, I really want somebody... I, I need to do more research on it, honestly, to see if somebody has explored that that theory and that concept. I'm, I mean, I'm sure that people in the UFO circles have theorized that and have discussed it. The introduction of something so powerful that it can completely just wipe out an entire two cities, that's that's scary amount of power. And that's definitely something that I'm sure someone out there, something out there was paying attention to. In my heart of hearts, I believe that's one of the reasons why the 50s were such a boom with activity. I think that could very well be the case. I am kind of disappointed that in this day and age, we've not had any major UFO leaks from the government. And I mean, we have had some videos leak, which are very convincing, but I'm talking about the president's little black book being leaked and telling us if aliens are real. You know that in National Treasure 2, that was a real thing. So we know by extension that it has to be real because National Treasure is basically a documentary. And I'm kind of pissed that they're recasting the whole f***ing series for Disney+. Plus. Don't get me started on that. But I think it's wild that we haven't heard more confirmation about aliens, about New Mexico, about the Hopkinsville Goblins. Because we know that like seven different levels of law enforcement went to investigate this. So yeah. what the hell? What the hell? Yeah, exactly. Sadly, going back to the remake of National Treasure, it's literally just another way for them to get freaking Tom Holland in another guy role. So this is probably one of the more publicized encounters because I'd heard about this encounter years upon years upon years ago. I just didn't remember that it was in relation to the Hopkinsville Goblin. I just remember hearing about a house full of people in Kentucky that were attacked by little green men, basically. And those little green men were hopping all over the place and they were just unloading shots on them, shots after shots, and nothing happened. And eventually the creatures just left. And the crazy thing about it is like Joe said, the police came and checked it out. So two officers were out there, nothing, nothing going on. They see shotgun shells all over the place, like where the gunfire had damaged trees, things like that, but no, no bodies, nothing like that. So they left. And then the family claims that the creatures returned around 3.30 in the morning. And that's pretty much when the family said, okay, that's, that's enough. They packed up and left, <laughs> which I mean, that's, that's probably the reaction I would have. Yeah, this encounter is not only really fun to talk about and recount, but it does have, I think, a pretty big impact on ufology and the way that we view extraterrestrial life forms. As we get in further about the description of the aliens, what happened that night, we will kind of see that this can almost be viewed as a playbook for alien abductions, alien encounters, and also your basis for what does an alien look like? We spoke at the top about little green men, and this is the encounter that actually coins the term little green men. 
So when you hear an alien encounter and they describe them as little green men or even little gray men, that's really what we're talking about. This is the basis for that. Yeah, I think that's why this encounter is so important to me because without it, the moniker of little green men would not be a thing. And it's just so ingrained into the mythology, so to speak, of alien encounters. I mean, aliens are still portrayed as little green men. Just such an iconic character. I know that one of Joe's favorites, The Simpsons with Mr. Burns, I still remember that episode and it's one of my favorites because of, I guess, the iconography of just the green alien with the big black eyes. And then same thing with even like in clothing brands and stuff like that, the green alien is still very much so alive and well, which I think is neat. Funny you mentioned that Simpsons episode. I watched it last night. It is one of my top 10 favorite episodes of all time. I love the X-Files crossover. I love Leonard Nimoy showing up again in The Simpsons. And I think it's just a very unique episode in and of itself in that it uses the crossover better, I think, than when they cross over with the critic. And it's just, it was a really good episode. I can't say much more about it than other, it was great. I forgot all about the show, The Critic. I used to love that show, but I think you're 100% right. That to me is the pinnacle of what a crossover event for like two different television shows should be. You get Mulder and Scully in there because The Simpsons was such a cultural phenomenon. The X-Files were as well. So that team up was just so out of left field. It's it's such a kick-ass episode. It's one of my personal favorites as well. One other thing I did want to mention is the Hopkinsville Goblin is actually the loose basis of the movie Critters, the 1986 movie, where there's an asteroid prison kind of thing that crash lands with the Krites, and they're these nasty little creatures that just eat anything. And yeah, I thought that was kind of cool to find out that a lot of the inspiration for the Krites in Critters came from the Hopkinsville Goblin. So that's that, that made me smile to think about that and definitely put that movie back on my radar that I need to watch it again and see kind of how it does relate to the actual encounter. Yeah, I've never seen it, so I'm going to check that out. And I know that... It's rated I, PG-13, which PG-13. is which is mind-blowing to me. Like, I remember watching Critters 1 at 2 and I think 3. They are super violent, like insanely violent. Like, there's blood spraying everywhere. Like, these things eat, just eat people and just come up left and right. And then I remember watching it and I was like, this movie's PG-13? What? Like, I was mind blown by it. Like, I don't know how they got past the censors with some of the stuff that they did. Mind blowing to me. Yeah. I've Like I said, I've never seen it. So I should check it out eventually. I know that I'm not as good with gore and horror as some. But I do want to read actually a couple excerpts from an article that I got on history.com. It's titled, How the Little Green Men Phenomenon Began on a Kentucky Farm. It's by Volker Jansen, and it's from January 2nd of 2020. But before I do that, we do have to do the, the weekly housekeeping here. So you're probably either still full from Thanksgiving, or you're full from leftovers, or you're exhausted from shopping. So what better way to cap off that Thanksgiving weekend than to donate to our Patreon page? 
it's finally up it's finally running you can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash oddity studios and like i said when you do become a patron we will be releasing extra episodes per month that is we're gonna be doing film analysis more of a funny film analysis top 10 episodes so counting down our top 10 favorites of whatever category and a percentage off of future merchandise purchases also we should bring up that we did listener submitted stories last week we'd love to do that again and if you want to submit stories to us from either yourself or a friend please do so at podcast at oddity.studio or you can tweet them at us at oddity2 on Twitter. That's oddity T-O like Terrell Owens. And then you might have heard the teaser to Puppet Modcast. That's my solo show. That will be coming out soon when I get the time to record and get everything set up for it. That was a little snippet of a pre-recorded segment that was about 10 minutes long as a test. Probably go back and fine-tune some things, but we're going to make that into a giant long-form episode very shortly here. And I know Keith's show is coming soon, and we'll be having a preview for that shortly as well. I'm working on a little bit of a pre-recording planning on that, but I will get something up that way you guys can kind of see and understand what flavor I'm bringing to it. So. A lot of really exciting things are happening in the Oddity universe. Definitely check out the Patreon. I mean, it's the time for being thankful. And if you guys are thankful for our podcast as much as we are thankful for you, please just donate what you can to us. We would appreciate it. It helps keep our lights on. And that way we can go back to our significant others and like, look, we did it. (laughs) Yeah. And I do just want to give a special shout out. My nephew was born today. So today is November 21st, 2021. My nephew was born today out in Wisconsin. So just wanted to give a big shout out to Mr. Henrik Wally. Welcome to Earth, buddy. That's a really cool name. And congratulations to you and your family. That's always huge. Man, the birth of a children is always one of my favorite things. It just brings so much joy and happiness to everyone. So man, just all the best to your family. Also, I think that's the first Independence Day reference that we have used this season. Welcome to Earth. Yeah, but you're not going to go up to your brand new newborn nephew and just punch him in the face like Will Smith does. I think you and I both know I'm not above that. Got Gene Snitsky over here guest starring on this episode. It's not my fault. Oh, God, what happened to that guy? He, like, went to college or something. Last time I saw him in WWE, he shaved all of his hair. That's all I remember about him. I was making a joke about, what was it, Chris Nozick or whatever? That that douche from Harvard? Oh, yeah, Chris Nowinski. Yeah, he does, like, concussion studies now. I'm not going to make fun of his profession, but, man, he was a douche. Oh, yeah, total douche nozzle. All right, so our sidebar has been completed. Our housekeeping is good. Our house is in nice, tidy order for now. I would like to read a few things from the article that I mentioned before, how the Little Green Man phenomenon began on a Kentucky farm. And before I do, as we said earlier, 
The encounter happened August 21st of 1955. The alleged encounter occurred on the Sutton's farm in the tiny rural hamlet of Kelly, Kentucky, where the family lived in an unpainted three-room house without running water, telephone, radio, TV, or books. Now, the eight adults and three children arrived at the nearby Hopkinsville police station at around 11 p.m. that night. They were genuinely struck with terror, like we had said earlier. This is a quote from Police Chief Russell Greenwell. These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help. What they do is reach for their guns. And yet, here they were. Women, children, and one man with a pulse of 140 beats per minute, which was measured by an investigator. Now, according to accounts given to the police, at about 7 p.m. on that hot Sunday evening, Sutton family friend Billy Ray Taylor was fetching water from the backyard well when he saw a silvery object, real bright, with exhaust, all colors of the rainbow, as he later accounted. It came silently toward the house, passed over it, stopped in the air, and then dropped straight to the ground. Taylor, who was 21 at the time, and his 18-year-old wife had come from Pennsylvania to visit Lucky Sutton, with whom he had worked on Traveling Carnival. The uh, Suttons, which was a 50-year-old widow and matriarch, Glennie Lankford, her two older sons and their wives, a brother-in-law, and then the widow's three younger children, who were 12, 10, and 7, did not take Billy Ray seriously, laughing off this UFO encounter. An hour later, they were alerted by the incessant barking of the dogs. Lucky and Billy Ray went to the back door and made out a strange glow, in the midst of which they spied a small humanoid creature, about three and a half feet tall. It had an and I quote, oversized head, almost perfectly round, its arms extended almost to the ground, its hands had talons, and its oversized eyes glowed with a yellowish light. The body gave off an eerie shimmer in the light of the new night's moon. They said it was as if it was made out of silver metal. Terrified, the two men reached for their guns. They grabbed a 20-gauge shotgun and a 22 rifle and fired at the little man, its hands now raised as if held up at gunpoint as it came towards the back door. They reported that it did a flip, scrambled upright, and fled into the darkness. Shortly after, the men saw a similar creature appear in a side window and fired through the window screen. Still impervious to bullets, the little man again flipped, then disappeared. This is a quote from Miss Langf Mrs. Langford. I went out in the hallway and crouched down next to Billy when I saw one approaching the door. Mrs. Langford told Isabel Davis, who is an author of an extensive report that is called Close Encounter at Kelly and Others, 1955. It looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top and small legs. It was a shimmering bright metal, like on my refrigerator. The drama escalated when Taylor stepped outside under a small overhanging roof, and those behind him 
saw a claw-like hand reach down and touch his hair. The group screamed and pulled Taylor back, while Lucky shot above the overhang and then at another similar creature in a nearby tree. It floated to the ground and then scurried into the woods. The Suttons moved inside and spent several hours listening for movements, hearing mostly occasional scratches on the roof. At 11 p.m., the whole group ran for their cars and hightailed into the Hopkinsville police station at high speeds. After a local police chief called for backup, his team was joined at the Sutton farm by state police, military police from nearby Fort Campbell, and a photographer from the Kentucky New Era. There, investigators found shell casings from the gunshots, but no other evidence. Neither could find proof they were heavily drinking. According to the Sutton matriarch, liquor was not allowed in the farmhouse. Once the police and others left, though, the creatures returned between 2.30 a.m. and daybreak. Mrs. Langford said she saw one glowing repeatedly by her bedside window, its claw-like hand on the screen. So that is the long-winded account of the Hopkinsville Goblin encounter. They were described as little men with round heads, about three feet tall. What gets me is when you see the initial drawing and sketch for them, they have big old ears. Their eyes are placed off to like near, near their temples, like on the sides of their face. And their feet are rounded off at the bottom like suction cups. Well, like I said, this was a long-winded encounter, and it kind of just more or less expanded on what Keith talked about earlier. But to give you a full idea, this was a siege for at least four and a half hours before they decided to go get help. Yeah, just based off the description, I'm looking at a drawing of it right now. I mean, this creature is unlike anything that could be mistaken in nature. I know a lot of skeptics say that it was probably a great horned owl. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> so basically this thing is if anybody's seen the classic 1984 Christmas movie Gremlins, that is what the Hopkinsville Goblin looks like. It's got the large floppy ears, the long arms that into talons. It's just even the description of its body. It was like slick and looked metallic in a way which i translate to it looking wet or reptilian so yeah it just in my mind i immediately hop to what the gremlins look like when the mogwai eat past midnight and they turn into the disgusting creatures <laughs> from the cocoons now whenever you were reading the description joe and you said that you know he shot one and it did a flip the first thing that popped into my mind was the way that The Rock used to sell the Stone Cold Stunner, just flipping all over the goddamn place. And it just made me laugh to no end. And then it also reminded me of when Scott Hall ate a Stunner too at, uh, what was that, WrestleMania 20? No, it was 18. 18, 18, my bad. But yeah, just <laughs> just the the oversell of the year, you know, kind of thing. It just That's just what it made me think of. What drives me nuts about this is why didn't Stone Cold face Kevin Nash at WrestleMania 18? Why did he face Scott Hall? Like, I get, I guess, why he faced Scott Hall. But at the same time, Kevin Nash is a much more impressive victory, I feel like, than Scott Hall, regardless of who Scott Hall was at the time. Because he could still go in the ring, but Kevin Nash, I thought, would have been way more impressive. Maybe they wanted a better quality match. 
because Stone Cold and Scott Hall, I guess, worked fairly similar at the time, but that yeah, both brawlers. That's the greatest mystery of all to me is why didn't they just have Kevin? Like, I feel like Kevin Nash is just the better. If Austin's going to go over anyways, why not either have him beat Kevin Nash or have him just beat both of them in a handicap match? Yeah, I don't get it either. It's one of life's mysteries. And if only there was a podcast that would look at situations and bad booking decisions like that and look to rectify them. That's the world I want to live in. And man, what a fantasy it would be. Yeah, what what a fantasy indeed. Rather, what the fantasy? Yeah, WTF. Yeah. This is what Joe and I used to do when we worked together. We would just sit back to back and just shoot the all day about cryptids and movies and whatever. And yeah, I mean, I just always looked at this podcast as just hanging out with my best friend, just talking, and I love it. And the fact that it's become as successful as a monster as it is, it, that makes all the work that we've put into it so far and all the work that we continue to put into it worth it in my mind. So I want to take the opportunity to say thank you for that. Yeah. So I think as as we approach the new year, not to put more housekeeping in after after a story reading, but as we approach the new year, we're looking at doing Oddity and still keeping Oddity on a weekly basis here because we have a lot of fun stuff planned leading up to the holidays. But we're also looking at doing my solo show, Keith's solo show, Patreon episodes. So if any of that stuff piques your interest or if you want to give us ideas, if you want to reach out and talk to us about helping write scripts please reach out to us at podcast at oddity.studio or if you just want to help us financially you can join our patreon page and every cent that you give us will go to buying us alcohol and candy yeah and also if you have any ideas for podcasting send them our way and see if it's something that we would like to get involved with as we've said before we're looking to expand the oddity universe and Get involved with as many projects as possible because we just found so much love and just we just love doing this so we we'd love to create something to where we could do this full time so any support you can give us we appreciate yes entirely now i do want to get back though onto the hopkinsville goblin situation here and yeah you you said that people have thought these were great horned owls I did look up a great horned owl just now. They do look kind of like what they're talking about, and they can grow to be about three feet tall. But this would have had to be a particularly bold pair of great horned owls, and it would have had to have been a particularly bulletproof pair of great horned owls. So I'm not sure if that really holds water in this case. I tend to take these encounters, like alien encounters or Bigfoot encounters, at face value because no one knows better than the people who were there and considering that this was almost a dozen people who witnessed this whole encounter this siege if you will of a farmhouse in kentucky i tend to think that this was more authentic and i wonder if this has something to do with skeptics not wanting it to be real because they are sent to 
kind of shut that stuff down like they are that men in black esque agent who is like there after the paranormal happens and says nah that didn't happen you're all liars you're all crazy yeah and i think that that's another thing that came from this story is the the kind of the stereotype or archetype whichever you prefer of the backwoods what do you want to call him a hillbilly hick redneck whatever the 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 down home country boy that's like well shit, ma did you see that thing in the sky like that that caricature i think really stems from this story as much so as the little green men kind of caricature does and it's just really interesting how much both of those have ingrained themselves into our culture but yeah, to go go on to your what you were saying about the great horned owl, I can definitely see how if you've had maybe some drink or God knows what drug wise or something like that, and then you see one of these things like that's got something wrong with it, it keeps flying into your windows. That would be scary as hell because they're not they're not the most friendly looking animals, and they look pretty alien, especially if you don't know what to expect and your mind is maybe altered by something. Yeah, I. Like, as I'm looking at this, as I'm looking at them further, I don't know if I could, in good conscience, say that what they saw was a great horned owl. Like, there are some similarities, but that would have to be a big-ass owl. And, once again, if they're not under the influence of anything, I can't... I can't believe that multiple direct gunshots from a from a 20 guys shotgun and a 22 rifle wouldn't kill an owl. Like, I guess sit there and tell me that their feathers are so dense they can stop bullets from fairly powerful guns. Yeah, at least it would have gotten knocked out of the air. I mean, something. And the fact that they also are very fervent when they talk about it, that it was like 12 to 15 of these entities. Owls, as far as I know, are not congregational creatures. It's not like you're going to happen upon a, a nest of owls and there's like 30 of them sitting there. They're not like bats. So that's another thing that kind of just has me throwing out that hoax idea. Whereas I really want to believe that these people did see something, especially as how terrified they are reported to have been when they came and reported it. Most hoaxes, you can kind of smell them a mile away. This one doesn't feel like that. And yeah, I mean, I would probably be inclined to believe them if I was in the situation to hear the story the first time. Yeah, and I know that there are claims that the surrounding grounds, so like not only the house, but the grounds surrounding the house were extensively damaged. So the wooded area around the house, the house itself, there was damage. And I don't know if an owl could tear up a forest like that. I think it's also strange that... What was his name? Billy Ray would see something like a metal spacecraft fly out of the... Fly out of the woods and go over the house and then smash into the ground past the house. Like, that doesn't make sense to me either. So... I really don't... I really don't know if there is merit to it, to saying it's an owl. 
because you can you can attribute a lot to tricks of the eyes and ball lightning and this that and the other but eventually there's come on I've seen videos of ball lightning and ball lightning is creepy but ball lightning does not look like a three foot tall little man wandering out of the woods and ball lightning doesn't look like a metal ball rising up intentionally flying over your house and then flying a little further and smashing into the ground so I don't know if the skeptics hold weight but that's just me yeah I'm, I'm right there with you I mean I feel like most people who are believers in the paranormal or in anything cryptozoology you know people who are fervent skeptics that even before you tell them about a story they're already disbelieving so these are kind of the people that would see something in front of them and then they would explain it away so yeah i a lot of skepticism is in that way i'm very skeptical of skepticism <laughs> if that makes any sense but yeah i don't know there's just so much with this story and how much impact it had over just everything up until this point in 2021 that this story is a classic but it, it, i feel like it's a classic because it is so believable and did really start more of a firestorm that was kind of sparked with the flatwoods monster and i think it's important to talk about these encounters especially because they did kind of set the precedent for what these encounters with these cryptids can be and one thing i'll say as well that I didn't think about till just now is what was the military doing there? Like, if you really think about it, the military was there. Why did they go with the police if it was just a bunch of owls? So, another thing to think about as well, the military and is still heavily involved in UFOs and aliens to this day, so what happened there? The fact that something like this was investigated by the United States Air Force, they say it was a hoax and kind of debunked in Project Blue Book, but the fact that they looked into it, the fact that there was a response from the military leads me to believe that they knew something was going on, whether that be experimentation by something they were doing or something they were just becoming aware of as well. Because like we said, the 50s are really a hotbed for alien encounters like this. Like real strange Saturday morning spaghetti western sci-fi like interactions, like real weird stuff. And then after those encounters happen, kind of the one-offs, they just stop. It's really interesting to me that things kind of changed in a way that they did where sightings became more prevalent with UFOs and then aliens and alien technology but kind of the weirder ones kind of disappeared and got kind of labeled as almost folklore in a way. So they, these, these kind of became modern folklore and myths and stories and legends as opposed to what they should be is historical documents of maybe first contact with alien races and technologies. I will say if this was first contact of human life and aliens, not the best way to start it off when you start firing your guns at them. Isn't it so typical, though? Like, <laughs> they land in America, and first thing they do is like, oh, yeah, shoot it. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so funny. Like, it's just, yeah, it just cracks me up. But 
Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is kind of interesting how it cultural things that it just make me think of. I, I'm just staring at a picture of the creature and it looks just like the Pokemon Sableye from Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. They kind of loosely based critters on it. The, the Gremlins look like it. I mean, yeah, there's so much stuff that has come from this idea and this concept of pitting extraterrestrials who are very hostile up against backwoods people. Even if you remember the, the game, uh, what was it, Redneck Rampage? Do you remember that game? Yeah. yeah. It was basically a Duke Nukem clone where you would you were just some guy you were trying to get back to, I think your price chicken or cow, I don't remember. It's so silly, but even that, you could see the inspiration came from this story. And it, that's why I think it's so important to talk about these stories. Oh yeah. I think it's really important to talk about these stories. These are old stories. But these are the classics. Like we said earlier, this is like a Hall of Fame alien encounter. And I think it's one of the best encounters. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the more we play video games and we see these creatures, the more we consume media and the more we talk about this kind of stuff, we're going to see more similarities as we go along. Next thing you know, we're going to find out that Pikachu is based on some sort of Japanese demon or some shit. And we'll end up covering it in one of our episodes, not knowing it until we're doing the research. We did find out that Pikachu does not have a black stripe on his tail. Yeah, that, that, that blew my mind, honestly. That actually legitimately broke me for a second. It's almost a bigger mystery than Monty Brown's career. <laughs> like, oh. He had all so I, much potential. He had so much all, potential. All I remember about Monty Brown was like this giant muscular man who would shoulder tackle people, but he'd go, pounce! Yeah, I mean, if you watch TNA Wrestling, like the early years of TNA Wrestling when it was like really good, Monty Brown was an absolute animal. They called him the alpha male. He ended up going to WWE under the name Marcus Corvon. He just didn't have the same... And, like, not that he ever caught on in TNA either, but, like, he had the look. The pounce was very unique in North America. I'm not sure if anyone else was doing it at the time. And I remember seeing him hit DDP with the pounce. And, wow, he can really hit that move. Like, I remember him throwing Raven through a table with that damn move. But I don't know why he never caught on. And I don't know why I keep bringing up wrestling tonight. I was always impressed by his... So it's basically, like you said, it's a uh, shoulder tackle, but... I was impressed by it because he actually competed in Super Bowl, what is this, 28 for the Buffalo Bills. So he's not only just like a legit like professional wrestler, this dude was like Super Bowl worthy in football as well. So he was, I don't know. I don't think TNA used him right either. Yeah. I don't think TNA used him right. I don't think WWE used him right. No one used him right. But that, you're right. That is a another topic for another day. Back to Hopkinsville Goblin though. I'm not sure how much more there is to talk about on this other than I think a good person to talk to this about would be Dan Aykroyd. I know he's busy he's busy promoting a Ghostbusters movie right now and I mean what a time to be alive that there's a new Ghostbusters movie and it's not a reboot. The original guys in it minus Harold Ramis who who has passed away. I think that honestly that cast of women are incredibly funny. Melissa McCarthy is absolutely hilarious. Kate McKinnon's really good. I think Kristen Wiig is in it as well. Kristen Wiig is really good when she stays in her lane. 
as in like she's she's really good at comedy she's not the best at drama as or action as we saw in wonder woman 84 but we should also take this time to let people know that our first patreon episode our first film analysis will be of the movie jingle all the way and that'll come out in the month of december yes we're just warming you up to our film analysis skills right now <laughs> so that you think that we're authorities and smart people when it comes to talking about movies I personally was a fan of the cinnamon photography of that movie. I just think that the objectification that they used on Chris Hemsworth to make him the dumb, ditzy blonde, like, you know, like the dumb, almost the dumb bimbo character that typically is reserved for women, which is disgusting. But I really love that they wrote that character as that kind of ditzy, like, piece of man candy. And he's he is so good in that role. like. Whenever he scratches his eye through the through the glasses frames, I almost spit water everywhere. And then when she smacks the sandwich out of his hand at the end, and he just goes, little help, and so he throws it back to him. I was freaking cackling because it's just so ridiculous. It was so good. It was so fun. But I would love to have Nanak right on this episode or on this podcast just to talk about kind of what he was thinking when they made that movie and then what his mindset was when they made this new one with, with Paul Rudd and then... Uh, the kid from Stranger Things. Like, I'm so hyped for this movie. Like, Ghostbusters was one of my original favorite movies, that and the original Ninja Turtles. So I can't wait to see it and talk about it with Mr. Murray. Or actually, Mr. Aykroyd and Mr. Murray. Let's get them all on there. Let's get Ernie Hudson, too. I don't know if we can afford to. I don't know if we have the audience to get those guys on here yet. And I don't know if we'll have it in their lifetime to make it worth their while to come on here and talk to us. I just want to pick Dan Aykroyd's brain about UFOs. I mean, he's apparently one of the leading UFOlogists in the world, but we keep getting off topic here. And I think that's because we've kind of exhausted what we have about the Hopkinsville Goblin and that Hopkinsville Goblin encounter. But my final thoughts on it are kind of like what we talked about in season one. I think the 50s and 60s were that it was all reconnaissance. I think you've got the Flatwoods Monster, which was terrain recon- uh, terrain and atmospheric reconnaissance, Hopkinsville Goblin, which was humor reconnaissance, and Roswell, which was failed surveillance. And then you've got all that culminating in the Mothman, which could have been phase one of an invasion, but I think the biggest thing to take away from this is that this really was the golden age for alien encounters and alien sightings. As time goes on here, we really don't get a lot of these, especially to this level. And maybe it's because the aliens have done all the reconnaissance they need to do, or they've gotten better cloaking technology, hence the Glimmer Man, which we also talked about in Season 1. Or any number of things or maybe they did strike a deal with the world's governments to let them observe us in peace or we've given them information and eventually we're going to be to serve man off this planet and i'm hopefully i'm the one that gets to yell it's a cookbook because i've always wanted to do that yeah just as long as you don't don't forget your towel yeah, so with that being said, Joe, what's what's your rating on the Hopkinsville Goblin from 1 to 10? What are you thinking? 
for me, I'm going to go about uh, seven. I think seven's good. I think regardless, they were folks that are in the backcountry. They could have either been tired with delirium. They could have had a few swigs of moonshine and just not said anything. I think there are some explanations that are a lot less sexy than aliens, but I'm going to say seven. I'm fairly certain this happened. I think I'm going to actually go around a six. You bring up a great point, and I think that's an overarching theory that we do have about alien encounters. So if you just look at the timeline of human history, 1945, you have the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 1947, you have the Roswell crash, which very much so seemed like, like like you said, Joe, like a failed reconnaissance mission. Like it was the first of the first or one of the first and maybe they did not factor in accurately how strong Earth's gravity is. They come into our atmosphere and they're like, oh, and then they crash. Uh Uh-oh. They don't know what happened with that team or anything like that. And then you start getting encounters like Flatwoods in 52 and then the Hopkinsville Goblin in 55. So it very much so on a running timeline, you can track these kind of encounters and that's always been super interesting to me. I think that this one, like I said, it falls into a six for me because I I really want to believe it, but there's so many aspects of it that make it almost too whimsical for me. So I I, I can't go stronger than a six, but yeah, strong six in that mindset. Yeah, I think this is something that we could expand upon because I think also in the 40s, there was the Battle of Los Angeles where the, what was it, the army was firing upon lights in the sky over Los Angeles over the ocean i believe so there there is a narrative that could be spun here if we can find the right reports and the right research to back up that narrative we could be talking about a small scale invasion that quietly happened in the 40s and 50s yeah battle of los angeles was 42 so it was a little bit before the bombings but who knows what kind of testing that we did before we actually launched on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I'm sure that we did testing that we don't know about. I think what I'll say is the official theory on why we dropped two atomic bombs was to show the Soviet Union what we can do as a world's military superpower during the Cold War. But what if it was actually a nuclear deterrent to otherworldly beings? and that we knew about this because of 42 in Los Angeles. That could have been the inciting incident to an intergalactic arms race. Even looking at something like the very overrated Independence Day Part 2, I think, believe it's called Resurgence. Kind of the, what the story they have of that is Earth was noticed by the harvesters or the ones with the city destroyers and all that, but there were other species that were out there that were fighting back against them. What if the Battle of Los Angeles was the first wave of an attack, like Joe said. And then all of a sudden, here comes to our rescue. We're able to harness the power of the atom a couple of years later. And unfortunately, we we had to use it as a deterrent as not only to communism and the USSR and things like that, but maybe it was even more so a deterrent against something that we don't even know about. Like you said, maybe we're showing Galactus that our planet's just too spicy for him and he couldn't eat it or something, who knows. Yeah, and before I say something else that might 
put me on a list here because maybe we just uncovered the secret conspiracy about all this. I think we should put a pin in this episode. We have had some great conversation. A few sidebars here and there, a few times we went off course, but all around I think it's a good talk and a good conversation about something that I think people forget about that really did lay the basis for what we see as aliens and what alien encounters could be. Yeah, and I think that's important to look into the past so are more bold to come out and say, hey, I had an encounter similar to this. Like, who knows? Maybe people, maybe some other people have been out there and have had encounters like this. The Hopkinsville Goblin case with them peering through the window definitely gives me flashbacks of our last episode with the story that your mom told us. It's a different species of what happened in Hopkinsville that was outside the window that your mom encountered too. We, we really don't know. And it's one of my favorite things about cryptozoology and just the unexplained in general is you could speculate it and you can you can talk about it all day long if you if you're willing to. Yes. And at that I will say we are still looking for encounters for that creature. So if you have any encounters, please do reach out to us. But with that I am gonna play us out here. This has been an Oddity Studios production, and Oddity is written produced and edited by me, Joe, and Keith. All audio is used under the protection of fair use. You can reach out to us at podcast at oddity.studio via email or on Twitter at oddityto. And join us next week when we are talking about La Llorona. Yeah, I hope you guys are excited to hear me mispronounce that about 400 times because that's going to happen. For people who may not be aware of what the legend is, it's basically the basis of the woman in white story. And it's one that I'm really, really excited about. It's one of my favorite ghost stories. And then, of course, culturally, it is a part of my heritage. So I'm really excited to share that with you guys. That will go ahead and wrap us up here. So until next time, I have been Joe. And I have been Keith. And remember, folks. Everybody wants them until we need them. <laughs>